Did you know that more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted from foster care? Ellie was one of them. When she was placed in foster care at 16, after experiencing significant abuse, she felt unlovable. Thankfully, Ellie was adopted with help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Today, she's planning on college and has a bright future. But more than 20,000 teens age out of care every year. You can help. Visit DaveThomasFoundation.org slash learn more. Over the past 10 episodes, I've told you some pretty wild stories about individuals or groups of people who were hell-bent on getting rich quick. These robbers broke so many laws and often left innocent victims as collateral damage in their wake. While compiling the research and information for this series, it was important to our whole team that we find the right balance between understanding the details of these crimes without glorifying the people responsible. So for today's special bonus episode, we decided to interview a few of the FBI special agents who worked some of the cases featured in this series. This is Armored, the untold stories of murder, mayhem, and million-dollar heists. off by going back to the case from episode one that detailed the violent armored truck robbery gang who plagued Houston, Texas in 2015 and 2016. This story involved Red Batiste and his friends who for months murdered armored truck guards from a distance via a mobile sniper platform and then rushed in and stole money bags in a matter of seconds. FBI Special Agent Jeff Coughlin was one of the lead investigators on that case and remembers well the fall of 2016 when things hit a fever pitch. You know, I, I distinctly remember getting called into my boss's office and him saying like, hey, yeah, this has got to stop. You're talking about a, a group that, again, had just killed two innocent people without any bit of remorse. I mean, again, these were murderers who robbed after. Coughlin says what stood out to him most about Red Baptiste and his crew was the fact that they were so well organized. And in his opinion, their M.O. didn't fit the behavioral pattern of what the FBI in Houston commonly saw in armored truck robberies. You know, I don't, I don't think the intent usually is to kill somebody. I, I think the intent is surprise the person and scare them so much that the guard basically just hands over the money, right? I think that's kind of the intent. But with this group, they didn't even give the guard that option because they, they were shooting the guard from a distance before anybody even came up on them. So truly a, a, a sniper-initiated attack where the, the, the robbery was preceded by a murder. And, and that's just not something that we see um, in the armored car robbery world, but even in general, right? So that was what was so kind of alarming about this this group, not only looking back on it, but during the investigation. I mean, we knew that we couldn't let this happen again because every time they did this, they were going to kill somebody. He says one of the biggest contributing factors as to how Red and his accomplices kept evading law enforcement was the fact that they used Houston's landscape to their advantage. 
a landscape that Coughlin says makes the city a prime target for armored truck robberies. Houston is, is large, not only in population, but also in land size, right? Like I think it's over like 600 miles, uh, square miles, multiple um, major thoroughfares going in and out, right? We have major highways that run east-west, north-south, northeast, southwest, and then we have, uh, at this point, we have three different loops that go around Houston. Uh, it just keeps on growing. Um, like in Houston, they don't build up, they build out, right? And so when you build out, you also need more uh, businesses. So that's, that's, you know, grocery stores, supermarkets, uh, gas stations, convenience stores, um, and then banks, right? And because most of these businesses, even though we're, we're moving to a, a card society where it's cashless will never will never be completely cashless like cash is still king and so these armored car companies service all these businesses all these banks um and i just think it becomes so that creates a target rich rich environment for uh suspects that are going to do something like this and then with the all the different thoroughfares it does provide uh relatively easy access to go from one side of the city to the other by November 2016, when Coughlin and the Houston Police Department finally had a grip on who their suspects were and how they were going to form a plan to take them down, it became glaringly obvious that they were dealing with extremely intelligent and violent individuals who were never going to stop. Coughlin says the information investigators learned about the prime suspects and their ringleader, Red Baptiste, prepared everyone on the task force for confrontation. Once we were able to actually get up on, on his phone and the Title III, the intercepts, then it became clearly obvious that he was in charge because he was, he was giving out the orders, right? And um, so not only were we able to see who's in the network, but we were able to kind of maybe have a better understanding of his, uh, his mind frame and his thoughts. Not only the, the, the orders he was giving, but the way he was giving them, he was uh, very, very confident and very excited about doing this again. You know, I went through all of his uh, media devices, so his computers, his phone, and, and you really start to uh, really understand or, or get a, a firm idea of who this person is, right? On the morning of December 7th, 2016, um, all the individuals that revolved, I, I think they knew that um, there's a higher than uh, there's a high probability that Reggie Batiste is not going to go into custody. Now, looking back five years later, Coughlin says he feels justice was served. All of the participants in these crimes faced punishment in one form or the other. And for Red Batiste, Coughlin says he made the decision to fight authorities, and that failed fatally. That's a choice to this day that Coughlin believes Red made in his mind well before he ever planned his first robbery in Houston. The next case that stood out as a pretty memorable one from this season was the story of Philip Johnson, the Loomis armored truck guard who, in 1997, single-handedly stole almost $19 million from his employer in Jacksonville, Florida. Philip should not be considered any kind of folk hero for what he did, even though it was dubbed as one of the boldest and most expensive labor protests. Philip is a convicted felon, no doubt. He's also someone who crosses the mind of retired FBI Special Agent Jim Dougal on a regular basis. Dougal was a rookie with the FBI in 1997, 
when he was assigned to be lead investigator on the Loomis Armored Truck Depot robbery involving Philip Johnson. That I was new in the FBI, and I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions of what an armored car robbery would be. I think a lot of the senior agents thought that it had to be a conspiracy, other people would be involved. Um, and I looked at this, I think, somewhat differently. The more Dougal learned about his prime suspect back in 1997, the more he began to understand the frumpy, frustrated man behind such a brazen crime. Philip Johnson was a unique individual. I believed he did this more out of frustration of his poor paying job. And as a payback for the company he'd spent many years working for, he didn't think he was um, getting satisfaction from. He was angry. Clearly, he was angry. He wasn't, he wasn't loved. I mean, it, that may sound weird, but he was not a warm child. I talked to his dad a bunch through this whole process and uh, kind of became friends with his dad. And he was always, always trying to look for affection and some type of acknowledgement and respect, and he wasn't getting it. And he spent years and years developing his other identities and personas and collecting passports and identifications without any other criminal history or criminal activity being noted. I've never seen anything like that. That's extensive long-term planning and he never told anybody. Even though Dougal believed Philip's motivation was frustration with his career, he still knew deep down that Philip was likely unhinged to a degree and was a threat to society the longer he stayed at large. Dougal made the assessment after interviewing Dan Smith, one of the Loomis guards who Philip kidnapped and tied to a tree in North Carolina. It took a lot of guts for him to point a gun at his coworkers that he worked with for years. And I think he had a lot of frustration with uh, Dan Smith. I think uh, when he had him handcuffed to a tree in the woods in North Carolina, um, from what Dan Smith explained to me, I thought that Philip was considering killing him in the woods that day. He was dangerous and, um, and he had a lot of money and he was in an environment where he could pay people who were probably willing to be even more dangerous to do his bidding. We weren't sure because his, his, the things that he did leading up to this weren't typical. It wasn't like it was easy you could read his profile and say he, would, he wouldn't do that kind of uh, violent stuff. When it came to the manhunt to find Philip, Dougal remembers the fact that Philip was an average looking guy didn't help the investigation. In fact, it sort of hindered it. We spent many months looking for him and we, we tracked him using numerous different ways, but we never got an indication that somebody identified him through a picture or what he looked like. There was nothing uh, interesting or stood out about him. Dougal was elated when he learned a few months into the investigation that his prime suspect had slipped up at the U.S. border and gotten himself arrested. He says before the FBI recovered most of the stolen cash that Philip had stashed in the storage shed in North Carolina, there was a period of time where Philip never stopped trying to weasel out of what he had done. 
even going as far as bribery to evade punishment. While he was in jail, he approached a corrections officer and told him that he would give him millions of dollars if he helped them escape from jail. And the corrections officer says, well, how would we do that? And Philip was willing to do anything. So he attempted to bribe uh, this guy and says, you'll drive me to the, the place where I have the money and then I'll give you, you know, $5 million or some outrageous amount. That ploy didn't work. And as you know, Philip Johnson ended up going to prison for 22 years. Dougal says when the FBI cracked open the storage shed and found Philip's money, they learned he'd only taken $200,000 with him while on the lam in Mexico. The rest of the tens of millions of dollars he left behind in North Carolina. That was a large amount of money. It's like stuff filled up the back of a pickup truck amount of money. There was also something else in the shed that made the case a slam dunk. And when they opened it up, everything was there. To include the videotape of him holding his co-workers hostage and taking the money, that was all videotaped by security cameras. He took that VCR tape out of the machine, but he kept it with the money. So we had, when we got the money, we're like, oh my God, here's the videotape. You have the evidence we need, there's no doubt. <laughs> Of the handful of armored truck robberies Dougal worked during his 21 years with the FBI, he's certain that Phillips' case was one of a kind, mostly because of the suspect himself. As far as an inside man MO, Dougal says those should never come as a surprise. Yeah, armored car robberies are, are few and far between. And that mostly, mostly uh, a lot of them involve the employees of the armored car company. Sometimes they're just sticking money in their pants. <laughs> One theme that was definitely apparent in several episodes this season was that armored truck robbers can and do commit senseless murder during these heists. I don't think it can be overstated how terribly tragic this reality is. One case that struck a nerve for our whole team as we were putting together this show was the 2012 murder of Michael Haynes, the Garda courier who was gunned down by his co-worker, Ken Conius Jr. Ken was convicted for stealing roughly $2.3 million in cash from Garda and for his partner's brutal murder. Just a few weeks after the crime, the FBI caught up to him living in a rundown house surrounded by stolen cash and drugs in Pompano Beach, Florida. The lead investigator who worked the case is Pittsburgh's FBI assistant special agent in charge, Scott Argero. He remembers the case for a lot of reasons, but one in particular. It got a lot of media attention here because there's not many armored car robberies that have happened in the Pittsburgh area. And in fact, in the 10 years I've been working here in the Pittsburgh FBI office, it's the only armored car robbery that I can recall. Argero says from the very beginning of the investigation, agents were analyzing every facet of the suspect in victims' lives. Knowing their backstories and the events that led up to them working together on that fateful day in February 2012, was critical to understanding the case. It's a tale of two individuals. Uh, Mr. Haynes was a recent college graduate from uh, Robin Morris University here in Pittsburgh. Had a hard time finding a job in the communications field and uh, worked a couple brief stints and then started working with Garda, uh, kind of just as stable employment. Whereas uh, Ken Cunius uh, himself was somewhat unsuccessful in his career paths. Uh, he was a, a volunteer fireman, was let go from the volunteer fire department. They didn't trust him, uh, took the police test, failed the police 
police test, wasn't able to become a police officer. So he was kind of scrounging in a career from a different perspective as being unsuccessful in his other careers and uh, got on with Garda. Was on for, for a short time and then they were paired up. Uh, they had only worked a couple times together. And uh, based on our research and our investigation, we believe that uh, Mr. Conius did uh, do some very specific planning. Whether he knew uh, you know, Mr. Haynes was gonna be his victim or whoever he had that day, it was uncertain, but uh, it was a very unnecessary killing. Uh, he could have pushed Mr. Haynes out of the car, been gone and disappeared the same way he did even after killing Mr. Haynes. Very unnecessary and brutal killing. At the time, the biggest challenge Argero remembers the FBI faced was the fact that Ken had such a huge head start on them. If you remember, close to three hours passed between when Ken murdered his partner, stole the cash, ditched the armored truck, and when Michael Haynes' body was ultimately found. Initially, the FBI and Pittsburgh Police Task Force hunting Ken down inaccurately assumed where their prime suspect would flee to and what types of people he'd surround himself with. He seemed to be very obsessive compulsive, always had his uniforms pressed real nicely, separated equidistance in his closet, uh, very kind of impeccable dress. So we were assuming that he was in some higher end locations and uh, maybe driving a really fancy car. Uh, we couldn't have been more off. Ken's eventual arrest in a drug house in South Florida was a far cry from where investigators thought he'd be hiding out. When the moment finally came through, Argero coordinated Ken's takedown remotely from his kitchen in Pittsburgh. The night the call came in, when uh, I was sitting at my kitchen island, and uh, I was kind of like elated, like couldn't believe finally a break. We've been pushing so hard. We had so many media publications out there. Uh, we had so many sources that we were operating, different you know, technical and human sources collecting information, and then it just was too good to be true. The fact that Argero and his team were able to put a killer behind bars and recover nearly all of the stolen money was something he says he has never and will never forget. We determined Ken had a storage unit down there in, in Florida, and uh, in uh, conducting a search of that storage unit, it was amazing to find that there was a, a million dollars, roughly a million dollars in a suitcase in the center of the storage unit with one shining light shining down on the, on the, on the suitcase, and it was the only thing in the storage unit. So that was like straight out of a movie itself. Hearing these investigators recall so many details about their cases from years ago is impressive. I guess if I was responsible for catching bad guys like this for a living, I'd have a pretty good memory bank too. To cap off this bonus episode, we wanted to leave you with one more case that wasn't covered in the previous 10 episodes. It's the story of Mark Espinoza, a Garda armored truck driver who I think probably fits the profile for who retired FBI agent Jim Dougal was referring to when he said some armored truck company employees just stick money down their pants. Mark's case didn't involve murder or violence of any kind, but it was brazen and overall well executed, except for one small hiccup. He forgot that fingerprints are the tried and true clue that get any criminal caught. Andrew Phillips, FBI Supervisory Special Agent of Louisville, Kentucky's Violent Crime Squad, spoke with our team to fill us in on the specifics of the case. On December 5th, 2018, Phillips, along with the Louisville Metro Police Department, were called to the scene of an idling Garda armored truck parked near Jefferson Mall near the outer loop of the city. The driver had gone missing. The truck had been found in the parking lot, engine running, but no signs of the, uh, the driver. And uh, that, that was sort of in the, and the cash was gone as well. It was carrying well over $900,000 that was, was missing. At the time, we did not know whether or not the, the driver had been um, uh, 
the individual that stole the money or whether or not he had been kidnapped. For Phillips, the worst case scenario was that Mark had been kidnapped and whoever robbed the truck would eventually kill him. But within a matter of days, that scenario started to seem less and less likely. You know, for me, life is the most important thing. Money can be replaced, but, but someone's life can't. So, you know, you, you take a look and see, is this, had, had this driver been kidnapped? Is he in danger? Is someone holding him uh, for some unknown reason? So that's, that's sort of the priority. And then, uh, you know, the priority, you know, eventually kind of changes after, after we start to determine that it, it, it was in fact Mr. Espinoza. Within, I'd say about two weeks, it was determined that, you know, most likely it was Mr. Espinoza and we, we were looking for him and wanting to find him. And, and sort of common sense would say, what would be the point of someone taking Mr. Espinoza? They only introduce additional risk to themselves. This person would not be cooperative with them if he was in fact kidnapped and he would have every reason to, you know, tell the authorities what happened to him and, and who had been involved in the, the theft and, and who, you know, the number of perpetrators. So fairly quickly, you know, it was determined that, that, the, that the kidnapping portion of the investigation um, was, was probably not a line that we wanted to pursue. The clues that helped Phillips and his team determine that it was Mark who was actually responsible for the robbery were subtle. Small pieces of evidence that just didn't sit right with FBI investigators. You know, it was odd that the, the vehicle was, uh, the doors were locked and the, and the vehicle was left running. Uh, Mr. Espinoza left his uh, service weapon inside the compartment and there was also uh, a notepad that was left. It was kind of between the seats uh, that had some suspicious writing such as you know it looked like trying to describe people in a, in a plate and and we determined later on that that was actually deliberate attempt to to uh you know obstruct the investigation the story behind the notepad is that mark had written down descriptions of people in license plates and indicated in those notes that he was being followed or watched. Phillips believes that Mark intended for the FBI to pursue the information written on the notepad as a lead, but the feds saw right through that ploy. The evidence that Mark had planned this heist all by himself was just too overwhelming. I mean, in this case, Mr. Espinoza did do some pre-planning. He had, you know, picked his location uh, for, for, for various reasons. He, he had, you know, done some planning for acquiring uh, some false identification and, and a, you know, what you would call a getaway vehicle, which is just basically a, a vehicle that we didn't know that he had owned. A few months after the crime, Mark made the FBI's task to catch him a lot easier. He attempted to acquire a, a government-issued driver's license in Connecticut in a different name. And when he presented documentation, you, you know, that process, you, you've got to present documents that um, will allow a government agency to, to verify who you really are. And as he presented those documents, they were, uh, from what I understand, they were quite obviously fraudulent. So he was detained uh, at the DMV. And then from there, once he was fingerprinted, it, it becomes just a matter of getting to him then because, um, you know, he had worn out and, uh, you know, you, you find out who he is from his fingerprints. That's right. Mark Espinoza put his real fingerprints on fake ID documents and tried to convince the Department of Motor Vehicles in Connecticut that he was someone else. 
What he didn't account for was the fact that he'd also legitimately given his fingerprints to the Garda Armored Truck Company when he started working for them. So investigators pretty much had their case made for them. After Mark's arrest in early 2019, Phillips and his team were able to find most of the $900,000 he'd stolen. And they recovered most of the money, uh, most of it in cash and suitcases. He did go through the criminal justice system and he was, uh, he ended up pleading guilty to five counts and he was sentenced to 37 months of imprisonment and two years of supervised release thereafter. So Mark will definitely get out of prison. Let's just hope he doesn't get sticky fingers again. Andrew Phillips's memory of the case is certainly positive considering he got his man, but more than anything, there's two specific details about the robbery and the suspect that he says speak directly to how amateur and immature Mark Espinosa was. You know, he got a pretty far, far distance from the Louisville area. Uh, he, you know, got away with a significant amount of money and, and he didn't, he actually had that money on him at his apartment and he didn't try to, to hide it. I, I think a lot of a lot of the concerns sometimes with these sorts of robberies are that somehow the money will be put somewhere that no one knows about and you'll never recover any of the funds. Um, and then the, the funny thing is, as I was remember, remembering this case is that one of the first things he did with the money was buy a puppy. So I thought that was, you know, maybe not surprising, but just kind of something that stuck out. Stuck out. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Armored. If you like the show, please give it a five-star rating and leave a review. Your feedback helps other people find the series. Armored is an audio Chuck original, hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Research and writing by Michael Whelan, with writing assistance from executive producer Delia D'Ambra. Editing by Eric Aaron. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones. 